I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail I'm inside a high-tech factory in Rolleston in Canterbury. I'm here because I got an email from their PR person after our podcast about the high cost of construction. They wanted to tell us the story about this company Concision and how it is shaking up the industry. Because under this roof, alongside the workers, computers and robots are building parts of houses and classrooms. We build a house three times. We build it once in the computer because we tell and design the computer where every nail, every screw, every cut is going. So they build it in the computer, then it gets built out here, and then naturally it gets assembled on site. Just a few months ago, this state-of-the-art multi-million dollar factory was on a roll, working at 80% capacity. But orders have slumped and it's had to cut staff. We can't carry on fighting this fight forever mm. uh, without some commitment from others. So am I worried? Yes. So I'm here to find out what is stopping it from thriving when the country's in the middle of a construction boom. Gosh, this really does look high-tech to me, not that I know much about factories that make building materials, but just from watching those TV shows... Grand they Designs? Go in, yeah, like Grand Designs. Absolutely. I, and there have been a number of shows on that Grand Design where it's where they've sourced, particularly into the UK, you'll see houses going into the UK out of a German factory. Germany and Sweden are probably considered the European... Yeah. That's Kerry Edwards, Chief Executive of Span Build Holdings, which owns Concision. I'm on a tour with him and Tony Whale, General Manager of Concision. But using this sort of equipment okay. and this sort of technology, and I think what you haven't seen and you won't see in, in here is the software that designs this. This is the start of the process. So we have what we call a um, five-access store and at the top of it has also got a routing tip. So again, um, the designers design it, then a CNC file gets sent here, and the operator puts the timber up, and it will determine what the, the best yield is for that piece of the timber, and it will then do a cutting file around that process. So, so we're looking through a window here. A piece of timber is coming through a little slot in the side, and then the, the, big, the huge saw comes down, and saws off a piece of the timber, and then the timber kind of So goes... it's going to route now, yeah. Right, that's going to route it. What does that mean? Essentially, essentially it's putting a, a hole or a, or a notch into the, into the timber. Okay, okay, so that's what it's going to do. And then the timber will shoot through the other side. Yep, so what wow. happens is then we also create a label for it. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially like a Lego set to actually feed into, the, into making the panel. Yep just to perhaps layman's terms. So essentially we've got raw timber delivered by a supplier from a mill. What the store is doing is it's, it's working on the software designs that we've plugged into it in terms of our production for the next 24 hours, for the next five days. We've told it what jobs are coming. And the clever little computer attached to that booth will figure out based on the cuts of timber we've got the right configuration to cut it in to ensure that we reduce waste. Right, right. So we're using the timber in the most efficient way possible and often the waste that we do generate um, can be used in, an, in another job because oh. the system now records that it's got this little off cut which will remember and then bring it in at one of the 
bits of a recipe when we build something else later. Yeah. And then what you've seen is that, so if we needed that cut down a certain length, the saw's trimming it down to get it to the appropriate length, and then the routing, as Tony described it, is essentially us putting in all the holes, the nooks, the crannies, that then help configure that build. So that's the stuff that is potentially done on site at different times. So we've got computer-generated accuracy, putting, cutting it and putting all the notches and um, etc. where it needs to go. At this point, that timber is designated for a particular building. Correct. Right. But it can be working on um, three different buildings at the same time to ensure that it gets the best yield out of the timber that we've got. Off-site manufacturing produces 30% of the waste of what a traditional build process does, and that's a big part of it, that efficiency and that clever design around what we're cutting, doing it here. So, for example, often there's a lot of timber that goes on site that get cut down by the builders on site, you know, yeah. and cut yeah. a bit more off than they need to, and, and then the waste, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. Whereas that, that goes to what? The rubbish dump? Correct. So on an average home in New Zealand, about three skip loads, of waste goes to the landfill. Wow. One skip load of waste is generated in this entire process of an equivalent build. So wow. a real sustainability issue. The biggest um, contributor to landfill waste in New Zealand is the building and construction sector. So if we can reduce that by 70%, that's a significant difference. That's some of the untold social stories that we don't buy into enough, I suppose. Yeah. We build the, the panels in what we call a multi-panel or multi-walls, but that panel could have uh, four or five different walls in it. So it could be a wall from a kitchen, a wall from a bathroom, a wall from a living room type thing. Mm. The uh, computer system just uh, nestles that all together and maximises the amount of capacity and, and uh, efficiency through. So then uh, the operator builds up that wall and then it goes through to a series of tables. In the middle there you'll see there's an automated bridge which we'll go and show you. So cut over there. Yeah. So they were raw sticks, then down into component parts, delivered over here and then now starting to be assembled. Um, And this process from here, we can do essentially the equivalent of a a full house lot well within an eight-hour shift. And how long, if, if you were doing that on site? It's really hard sometimes to compare the individual aspects of the build programme with one another. But what I would, I would say is that on the projects that we've been involved with, we've saved anywhere between 30 to 50% of time on site. Well, Lemonwood Grove, we built the whole school from a roof and wall panels in about six weeks. Yeah. But, but the entire project... They, they would normally allocate about eight months and it took Some five months. months. Yeah. So that's, that's three months off a build program. And, you know, if you simplistically look at that, the productivity issues that we've got in New Zealand, um, and as we read more about now, not just related to building and construction, mm-hmm. but in the building and construction sector, to a residential home builder, we often talk to them about you can do twice as much in any given year with the same resource mm-hmm. if you buy into this way of thinking. But that's the trouble. Not enough people are buying into this way of thinking. This is a system that Sweden adopted 50 years ago and it helped solve its housing crisis. But there's reluctance here from councils, developers and the government to embrace a different way of doing things. This is a factory that makes up panels and modular parts off-site that can save two-thirds of the waste of a traditional construction project 
and do it up to 50% faster. You'd think it would be overflowing with work. No way. We're probably at about 20% capacity. Oh. Yep. Why not? Demand. So continuity of demand has been a real struggle for us for this for the seven years that we've been pioneering this. And, and we've gone through some really good stints. So, you know, between September last year and January of this year, we were running at probably close to 80% capacity. Yep. But it's hard to get the continuity of demand. And hence why we're really keen to educate people that this is not black magic and it's got a real uh, role to play in in the New Zealand building and construction sector. It's not the only answer, but it's got a massive role to play. We're at four large tables with panels where a few workers are doing simple jobs such as measuring and moving big sheets of board with machinery. Table one is where we uh, basically square it up, where we um, put in any structural fittings, and then we put uh, the first layer of sheeting on. That sheeting could be plasterboard, it could be OSB, or it could be um, plywood. Once that's done, these tables flip together, um, they call butterfly tables, and then you transfer the panel from one side to the other. So um, you'll see on table two on the other side, it's got the sheeting on the bottom, um, and that's where we then put in our services and insulation. So electrical or plumbing can also go in at that same time. Then once that table's been filled with uh, insulation, uh, then goes to table four over there, uh, which we're going to have a look at in a moment. At table four, the other sheeting, like plasterboard, is added. So in one pass, a multi-wall is made. Off-cuts are reused instead of going into the skip. But there's no hammering or drilling or stapling by people. It's all done by the bridge. So the bridge has got saw cutting, again routing, drilling, marking as well, but it's also got um, two nail guns and a stapling gun on there as well. You know, they're, they're nailing them off at a 1,000 staples a second. Wow. We call it a bridge. Essentially, it's a robot. Yeah. It's a robot that is driven by software that knows exactly where to staple, exactly where to nail, exactly where to cut out holes for the windows, for the door, door joint area, etc. Every aspect of it, in terms of the, I guess, openings that have been created, it nailed together has been operated by a um, precision robot. Now if you turn around, we, we capture all the offcuts as well. So we've got these racks, we create them into different size um, sheets and those are reused in the process. If that was done on a building site, they would be going into the skip. And the people who are working here, yep. so there's a man over there who's sawing off um, yep. a bit of timber, someone over there who's drilling, are they skilled tradespeople? There is a mixture. So we've got... Uh, two or three LBP uh, builders here then we've got a whole lot of carpenters some of those carpenters are Filipino uh, tradesmen that have been working in Japan and and then we've got um, semi-skilled guys um, that are coming through the trades here in New Zealand. What are they following? Is there a plan there? A set of instructions? Yes, yes, there is. Okay. So you can see in front of you the, I guess the screen with the computer file that essentially got that same that same information being fed into the robot. Yeah, So when we start a job, we have working drawings. So there's a set of drawings for each panel, which basically gives an outline in terms of what that wall is. It's hard to explain on radio, but fundamentally that drawing there um, has all the different walls with all the different studs and nogs in it. And where the areas highlight is where the machine is actually going to either nail or saw or whatever next. 
Then what we have is what we call, this is our quality control system. So for every um, wall that we create, we actually create uh, a schema, um, so an inspection testing plan. Then uh, the operators would do their, their work, follow the plan, and then they take a photo of every single um, uh, panel. And we break that down into what we call quality control points, control points and, and uh, critical control points. And the operator will then have to prove that we are compliant to the code there. And they put that into the, um, into the computer, take a photo, put it into the computer, and then there's a sign box that says uh, that we are compliant to that process. Right, right. You have regular inspections on a building site, don't you, during the process of the building? Correct. So what happens here if so much of it is pre-made in the factory? So that's been one of the early challenges for the industry to accept, I guess, and the territorial authority, particularly around consenting, is... Yes, we're so used to inspecting in quality on site. That's why we've got such a structured quality framework, mm. inclusive of photos, which gives um, those territorial authorities the comfort that we've done what we said we would do. Right. Because as manufacturers, we live in a world that wants to replicate and repeat all the time. So we repeat our performance. Um, and we can do that with certainty. So therefore, if you've got a good quality system, you should be able to manufacture that into the process. Mm. And therefore, OK, this is what we said we are going to do, this is what we've done, this is how we've validated it internally, so there's less inspections required. Uh, which, you know, has in part been disruptive for the council too, because yeah. it's, it's a change in thinking, it's yeah. a change in their, you know, arguably in their risk profile. Um, but I don't think so because I think with a good quality framework, you know, the consenting process, the inspection process really is a quality framework. That's what it's there for, it's mm. to ensure that builders on site are building to the code. Well, we've got a quality framework, we've got a process, we've got manufacturing disciplines that build that quality in. And, right. it's, um, and that's what we're sharing that framework with the council is what we're trying to do to, to give them that comfort. We ended up... Not with all uh, councils because that's that's a beast in itself. But with some of the major ones, like Auckland City Council, we've entered in with a memorandum of understanding. So they they fundamentally accept our um, ITPs and quality assurance framework as being um, of high quality. So therefore, um, we'll just randomly review that. Okay. But it is another example of the disruption that something like this can cause to a traditional way of thinking. Yeah. Because what would you end up with when you're building a building? How, how many of those traditional on-site inspections would you end up with? Normally, for a, say a traditional build like this one, a sort of single-storey traditional build, you'd have eight, and we would break that down to probably two at the end of the day. Yep. We have turned it on its head and gone, right, we can actually prove to you every single wall is compliant. Yep. And I don't think there's anybody, any builder in the country that can do that. Okay. Yep. Yeah. At the end of the factory, the finished walls are stacked up in racks. Some panels will be built into modules inside the factory, then trucked to the site. Is building these um, classrooms, building a house cheaper than the traditional way? You want to answer that, <laughs> Kerry? <laughs> yeah, look, it's an interesting question because I think there is a perception around cost that to do it this way it has to be cheaper so we would argue that it's it's definitely cost neutral but if you look at the total cost of the project and actually the total cost if you include the good design that you can do at the front end into the life cycle of the building 
then we believe there are benefits from a cost perspective. But for us, it's about productivity, it's about quality, and it's about sustainability at the same cost. It's not necessarily a solution that you come here to say, I'm going to get a cheap prefab classroom. Mm. That's what it used to be. Yeah. We are building to high standards. This Wakatipu example that Tony's showing you is in the flight path of the Queenstown Airport. So the soundproofing in there is at exceptionally high standards. As it, no child will get cold in that classroom. <laughs> so are you saying that, say, you know, I want a, a house built um, around about $500,000, if I had a builder on site to build it versus getting it done in the factory, it would cost the same, it would be the same house, except that it would be faster here in the factory and you would have much less waste. That, that's correct. At a materials level, certainly it costs about the same, but I think there are some hidden advantages that we don't see, and one of them particularly being financing. Mm. So for most people, if you talk about um, Mr and Mrs Smith while they're building their house, they're living somewhere else. All right, so... We've taken a tour of the factory, and my first question is, why are you only working at 20% capacity? Why aren't you getting more work? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a frustrating scenario. We, um, we built some really strong capability during se- September of 2020 through to January, February 2021, where we had a good uh, level of confidence around the volume that was coming through. We had consistent volume coming through. We were at very high levels of output, which meant that we did invest in more people. Unfortunately, some of those people have had to go because we couldn't back that volume up with um, more supply. You have obviously invested a lot of money into this factory. Tell me a bit about how how it all came about. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So Bill G, who's the, 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 essentially the founding shareholder of Spanbuild, started this journey many, many years ago um, on, on lots of travels that he'd done overseas and to some degree was probably well ahead <laughs> of the curve um, compared to the, uh, to the New Zealand sector. So approximately 10 years ago, when the Ministry of Education were talking about their transportable classroom process, how do we get classrooms on site more quickly, where they're needed, when they're needed, we looked at, at this sort of technology as a way of getting involved so you're right, for Bill it's probably been an investment of, of emotion and energy for a long, long time. For the rest of the business it's probably been 10 years and certainly the last six to seven, a lot of pain, a lot of sweat, a lot of blood, a lot, a lot of investment. What sort of investment? Many millions? We're, we're talking millions. Yeah, you must have plans, you know, by the end of this year you want to be doing this, this and this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we set budgets every year so there's always goals. Look for us... We are well behind where we thought we would be at this stage of our journey. If we turn the clock back seven years and go, uh, would we still be talking about having the debate around capacity now? Did we think that? No. Uh, we, we thought we'd be further ahead. It's taken a lot longer to educate, to get by, and um, we're starting to get there, and particularly with those government agencies, they are starting to, to work really hard with us and other players in the market around this stuff. New Zealand actually doesn't have a good history of modular prefabricated factories, does it? I mean, there have been quite a few, you know, in the past that have started up great hopes but fallen over. Absolutely, but 
I think the reality is uh, they've become victim to the continuity of demand. So, as we said earlier, there's significant investment required in this way of thinking, and it really hurts factories and therefore businesses when you're not recovering anything on a week. Mm. So I think a lot of, you're right, there's a checkered history, which which doesn't help uh, in some people's minds, but that more reinforces why it's so important that we get that demand pipeline uh, resolved Mm. because this is not the way of the future. This is the now. Yeah. It has been overseas for a long time. It is part of the solution, and we need that demand pipeline. Um, similar to what's happened in Sweden, essentially when you go to Sweden and talk to the players over there in the building and construction sector, they have to convince somebody now to build traditionally. Huh. Are you, how worried are you that you might be the next victim of this modular building falling over? We've got a strong business, uh, a broader business. But yes, I mean, we can't carry on fighting this fight forever mm. uh, without some commitment from others. So am I worried? Yes. I mean, I think this sector will be a big part of building in New Zealand at some point. And uh, I'm just very optimistic and hopeful that as the pioneer in New Zealand as somebody that's done a lot of heavy lifting around the education, the buy-in, that we've got a role to play. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Alexia Russell produced today's episode. Rangi Poak engineered it. And thanks to Kerry Edwards and Tony Whale. Ka kite.